Good morning, good morning. Welcome. My name's Matt. If I haven't met you before, it's good to see you as uh, part of our family this morning. It's great that you could be here. Just want to echo Brad's welcome for those of you who are new this morning or visiting. Hope you really enjoy church this morning. We're going to uh, be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 2 or go there in your phone or iPad, whatever you use. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to kick off from verse 11 halfway through this talk. So that's where we're heading. I'm going to pray for us as we come before God in his word and ask that he would speak to us and transform us. This task that I'm about to do is completely pointless unless God works, unless the Spirit acts and changes our hearts, changes our beliefs, changes our lives and makes us more like Jesus. In many respects, um, the preaching is futile unless, like uh, Elijah cries out to God, pour down fire, unless God pours out his Spirit and changes our hearts. Uh, this word is futile. It's just it's just noise. And so I'm going to pray that God would still our hearts now and speak to us through this word because we believe that he does. So would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. We know that you are not silent. And so this morning as we come before your word, we pray that we would come humbly, ready to hear from you. We ask that you would pour out your spirit on us, that we would be radically changed and transformed, change our thinking change our lives, make us more like Jesus, help us to be the church that you want us to be. And we pray, Father, you would continue to knit us together as a family, as a community, to reflect what you have done for us in the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you weren't here last week, we're taking a short break from our, uh, our series in Luke's gospel to do a quick recap on our vision and so if you were part of our launch team, part of the 40 or so people that were here from uh, the 1st of January this year, this stuff is, is a refresher for you, which is good. It's good to be refreshed about this stuff and be reminded. But if you're new, um, this stuff is hopefully going to catch you up um, and fill you in on the reason we planted this church, what we are trying to do and what we hope to see God do here at Anchor. And for those of you who are new and have joined us in the last couple of months, uh, we love the fact that you've decided to make Anchor Home. You make us a better church, not just a bigger church. And so um, we, we love the fact that we get to include you in part of our family. So thank you for making Anchor Home. And we look forward to seeing many, many more people come to know Jesus and come to join our family. I just want to share with you our vision and mission quickly, just to catch you up on, on what this is all about. So our vision, and vision simply means what we see. This is our vision. The, the church we hope to see is this, a church that transforms our city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. A church that transforms our city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. Every church ought to have discipleship for the glory of God as their, their purpose, the reason that they exist. I mean, that's the whole point of Jesus commissioning the disciples at the end of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so discipleship, ought to be the heart of what the church is about. And all of that is done, not to build the church up, not to, not to fund pastors and ministries, and, but for the glory of God. But we want to put a bit of a spin on that and make that a bit more specific for us here at Anchor. And that is that we want to see that happen in such a way that it transforms our city. One person at a time, as people come to know Jesus, 
taught how to follow him, worship him, be disciples. And they will be taught how to be disciple makers and we will make disciples, we'll make disciples, we'll make disciples. And there is a process of individual multiplication and then our gospel communities will grow and we'll multiply them out and then we'll go plant new churches eventually. That's our hope, that our city would be radically transformed as individuals begin to worship and follow Jesus. And so we've got a, a, a big vision for our city, for our church. And so how are we going to do that? Secondly, that's our mission. Mission is simply how do you get to what you see? How do you do your vision? And this is the way that we figured we will do this. We want to gather people together in rapidly multiplying gospel communities, equipping you to be sent on mission to your city, to make disciples of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. And so the core of what we're on about at Anchor is about gospel-formed community. And if you've been here for any period of time, you will know that we just keep talking about community. Brad welcomed you as family this morning. And that's what we're going to spend our time camped out on this morning, this idea of gospel-formed communities. Now, all of that's a really big mouthful. And so to help you remember that, we've just summarized into three words, in community, on mission, for Jesus. In community, on mission, for Jesus. That's what we're on about at Anchor Church. Now, last week, we laid a gospel foundation for that. And for those of you who like pictures like me and need help understanding what this is, I've drawn a little picture to help you get what this is about. So last week we laid our foundation. This is a a gospel-centered church. Everything we do comes from the gospel and for the gospel. So there's the, the foundation of our church is the gospel, the work of God of sending Jesus to die on the cross. And then the two pillars are community and mission. And we're going to spend all of our time this morning talking about community, and then next week we're going to be talking about mission, and the point of it all is all for Jesus, all for the glory of God. So for those of you who need pictures to get the vision, that's what it looks like. That's the type of church we're trying to build here at Anchor. Um, I want you to imagine this for a second. Um, Imagine uh, the Department of Community Services takes a bunch of um, kids that are orphans, and they, they place them in a, an orphanage, in a, in a large home to care for these children. And uh, they come from homes that are dysfunctional. Some of them have no parents. Some of them have parents that have abused them. And, and the, the, the situation is a mess for these children. And the, so they all just kind of get lumped into this one orphanage. And, and in a sense, that's kind of what's happened here at Anchor. We've started a new church. And... God has adopted us all into his family, and, but we, we just come with mess and brokenness and context and situations and problems, and it's just like we've all been thrown into this orphanage together, and we're trying to do life together, and, and it can be messy and ugly, but, but I, as I've been reflecting this week on what God has been doing in the last nine months in our church, I'm blown away by the sense of family that we have. And so this morning what I want to do is, is focus in on this topic of community. Community is not an accident. It's not a strategy. It's, like, it's not like the, the latest strategy to grow and build your church. It's not even cultish. It's the intent of God. And so my, my aim this morning is to help you see that community is our identity. It is who we are. It's not something that we do. The reason I think this is the case is because Um, of the God that we worship. The God that we worship is a God who has existed in relationship for all eternity. 
in loving, perfect, good relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in community, in family, together. And so relationship, community, is at the heart of the character of God. And it's in His image that He creates us. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, you notice, not let me, let us in the Trinitarian relationship, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds uh, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. We're creating the image of a relational, communal God, Trinitarian God. And we cannot reflect the relational image of God in isolation. We just can't do it. We cannot possibly be image bearers, reflectors of God's likeness and character as individuals. That's why when God was creating things, At the end of the first day, he said it was good. Second day, it was good. Third day, it was good. Fourth day, good. Fifth day, good. Sixth day, it wasn't good. Because Adam had no partner, no helper. It was not good for Adam to be alone. And so God made a suitable helper for him in Eve from from his side, from his rib, to be his companion. Because it wasn't good that Adam would be alone. In fact, Adam couldn't reflect God's relational nature. In isolation, and so God creates him a helper. We have been created for community. Theologically, that is true. We can, we can read our Bibles, but experientially, it's true, is it not? We, we long to be known, to know people. We feel lonely when people aren't in community, in relationship with us. It's just it's our experience of who we are as people because we've been made in the image of a relational, communal God to reflect that. It's part of God's character and it's part of who we are. It's not an accident. And yet sin fractures that relationship. Sin fractures that community. Destroys that community in two directions, in a vertical direction, in a horizontal direction. Firstly, sin fractures that community between us and God, between people and the God that we worship. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, naked, without shame, walking in the presence of God. And then as soon as they sin, they add of the fruit. What happens is God curses them, kicks them out of the garden, away from his presence, away from his life-giving blessing. That relationship is fractured and broken. But the, the, the horizontal relationship is fractured and broken as well because the relationship between Adam and Eve is distorted by sin. The curse of the fall, God says that Eve will desire, her desire will be for her husband, but he will lord it over her. The relationship is bent and broken and unhealthy. And so sin distorts community and breaks relationship in two planes, in a worship plane and in a fellowship plane. But the gospel, the gospel renews and restores community. And we looked at this last week, the redeeming, reconciling work of Jesus to make us his, that God would gather for himself a people, not individuals, a people, a church, a community of worshipers. God restores that, that, that vertical community that was broken and, hit, and then he also restores the horizontal community that was broken. The gospel unites us, makes us one, makes us citizens, makes us family, renews and restores it. And, and 
what we currently experience now as a church, the community that we have is a, is a foretaste of the ultimate community that lies ahead for us. The, the picture of the ultimate community is Revelation chapter 7 where God is at the center of the throne and people from every tribe, tongue, language and nation are gathered around the throne and declaring the praises of God and they're dressed in white robes in victory and cleanliness and that is the picture of the ultimate community that lies ahead. And that's the story of the gospel from the vantage point of community, of relationship. We've been created for community. Sin destroys that community. The gospel restores it and points us towards the ultimate community that lies ahead. Community is at the very heart of God's character and at the very heart of his purposes. This is what God is on about doing. That's what the gospel is. And so often our individualistic Western mindset and worldview pushes against what the gospel is trying to do. Not just saving individuals. It's not just an individual experience of worship. This is family. And so what what I want to do is look at what it looks like to be united as God's family, as a community. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2 to do that. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. And we're going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So follow along. This is what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So what he's saying is there's two groups of people. There are those of you who are the uncircumcised, that is, those who aren't part of the ethnic Jewish group. And then there are those who are the circumcised. That's what he's saying. Two groups of people. Remember that you... The uncircumcised Gentiles were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Uh, Sorry, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So much in there. I could preach 10 weeks on that, but what I want to hit on is three images that come up in those verses. We're united. We're united. We're one. We're citizens and we're family. Firstly, we're united. You notice the language that comes up in those verses of the dividing wall of hostility being destroyed, of, of two people being weighed, one new people, one new man, of, of peace, the image of one body. All of that is descriptions of unity, the unity that Jesus has won for us. The the background to this is the social, racial, religious um, disunity that happened, that occurred between Jew and Gentile. 
the gospel does in this church in Ephesus what no UN peace plan has ever been able to achieve in history. Two people groups that are completely at odds with each other. Hatred, enmity, and the gospel unites them and makes them one. That's incredible. The fact that Jew and Gentile could stand together and worship Jesus in church is phenomenal. It's absolutely incredible. There's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel unites us. And the things that made these people different are nothing in compared to the blood of Jesus that makes them one. And the same is true for us. We are united. The gospel creates a new community. If you read the book of Acts, you will read that the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that. And you read the book of Acts and it happens and you trace it through and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and we think, yeah, great. But that is mind-blowingly big. The gospel is doing what it has never done for centuries. It is shattering the wall of race, Jews only, and, and just swallowing everybody up into this beautiful new community of faith. The gospel goes to the end of the earth and that is stunning, absolutely stunning. We're united. We're one. There's peace. And so who are we to think that we can then destroy what Jesus has done in making us family? There is no dividing wall of hostility that the gospel does not destroy. People will hurt you in this church. I will say things that might offend you. People will let you down. You'll feel neglected. You will, you'll feel left out. But you know what? The gospel can reunite that. The gospel can heal that wound. And it ought to heal that wound. And so what it means is we, as a bunch of orphans get thrown into this family together and it's messy. And, and, but the gospel makes us work together. Because the gospel deals with sin. The gospel means that there is no sense of me versus them. The gospel means that there's no sense of superiority because grace is a free gift. We all come to Jesus on the same terms. We all need his love equally. And so there's, it's the great leveler. And so it ought to mean that the issues that we have with each other can be resolved in the gospel, in what Jesus has done for us. If God has forgiven me, of my sin, and surely I'm able to forgive the sin of my brother or sister who has hurt me. The gospel makes us one. But you know what? It's not like it, it's a, a Brady Bunch kind of family. It's not what it is. It's not like we've got this veneer of, it's all, we've got it all together and everything's all sweet, but underneath it, it's just messy and ugly. And It's not what it's like. It's not what the family of God is like. But it does mean we deal with the issues. We we talk about them. We love each other. We need each other. I mean, the lie of Western individualism is that you don't need anyone. You can do it all on your own. But the scriptures tell us that we need each other. I mean, what are the images that God paints of the church? Is it not a body with hands and feet and eyes and ears and to function well? We, we need each other. But so often... The church looks like someone who's got like one leg that works. It's just like one leg just keeps getting dragged along because it's 
right? It's dysfunctional. But we need each other. We, we need to carry each other's burdens. We need to pray for each other. We need to look after each other. We, and we've seen that happening because that's what family does. That's what it means to be one, united, one new man out of two. And so that's the first image that we've got there, an image of unity. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. We're united together in Christ. The second image there is that of citizens. You have a look at chapter 2, verse 19. This is what it says. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. Prior to the gospel coming and radically changing these people's lives, they were foreigners, refugees. And the gospel makes them citizens, no longer aliens, no longer foreigners, but this is your new home. This is your new nation. That's why Peter talks about being a holy nation, a people that belong to God. We're citizens. I remember in about 1991 or 92, my family went to Hornsby local courthouse. After living in Australia for about three or four years, we immigrated when I was nine years old from South Africa and as South African citizens came to live in this country. And about three or four years on after that, we went to the courthouse and participated in a citizenship ceremony. Now, I can't remember much of the ceremony apart from the fact that we sang the national anthem. There was a guy with a big dress on up the front. They gave us a spoon afterwards with the Australian coat of arms on it and this little um, certificate with my mum and dad's name on the front and my name and my brother's name on the back. That's all I remember. But what it said was that you are now citizens of Australia. No longer were we citizens of South Africa. We were citizens of Australia. This was our home. This was our country. So much so that when the All Blacks, when the All Blacks, when the Wallabies play the Springboks, I'm cheering for the Wallabies, not the Springboks. And when we play cricket, I'm like, yeah, go Australia, because this is, this is my home. I mean, I've lived here for most of my life, but it's home. This is, this is where I live. And in the same way, Jesus makes us citizens of a new nation, a new home. Heaven is our home. We belong. It's our citizenship. It lies there. And so we're united. We're one. We're citizens. But thirdly, we're also family, members of God's household. Have a look at verse 19 again. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You belong to God's household. Now that word household, we think household and think, you know, Two, two parents, mum, dad, two and a half kids, a dog and a goldfish and a kluger to fit everyone in. I mean, that's what we think a household is, but the picture of a, a household in the New Testament is vastly different from that. It included family and extended family and goats and cattle and servants, and it was big. And this word household elsewhere is translated in the Scriptures as family. And so you've been included in the family of God. It's not that you just live here. It's not that you're a tenant here. It's that you belong. This is your family. This is a new community. A few weeks ago, in fact, last weekend, had the privilege of marrying uh, Isaac and Sam. Such a beautiful wedding. And uh, in the wedding vows, there's a line that says, in marriage, a new family is established. As Isaac, a Viglione, comes, as Sam, a freshwater, comes, and they unite and they become one, and a new family is established. A new Viglione family is established as the two become one. And that's the picture of what the gospel does. 
makes us one, makes us family, a new spiritual family. God is your father. Jesus is your older brother. And every other Christian is your brother and sister in Christ. And so it means it's totally appropriate for us to call each other brother and sister. And sometimes the bonds, the spiritual bonds that we have are even deeper than with our blood family. We're family. And the way that family works is that we look after each other. And we've seen beautiful pictures of that. I mean, we personally have experienced a month of meals from you guys. After the birth of Piper, we didn't cook anything for a month because you brought meals around to our house and they were beautiful and it's an expression of family. Some of our friends who aren't part of church are amazed that people would care enough for us to bring us meals for a month. It's family, it's what we do. We've seen people paying bills for other people. We've seen people going out of their way to offer lifts for people. We've seen people... um, helping others financially, praying for people, you name it. A whole host of expressions of how we live like family. And it's such a beautiful thing to see and watch. And I I have the privilege of standing from the vantage point of being able to see so much of it. And, And maybe you just see a small expression of it in your gospel community, but it is a beautiful thing to see us living well out of our gospel identity. So that's it. We are... United, we're citizens, and we're family. But what I want you guys to get is that community is not just something we do. We don't do family. We don't do citizenship. We don't do community. It's who we are. It's our identity. And that was all of that gospel identity stuff we spoke about last week. It's not, community is not a department of our church. It's not a strategy to close the back door to stop people from filtering out the back. It's It's who we are. It's our identity. It's an incredible perspective of church, isn't it, when you think about it like that? And church is not just a two-hour event you attend on Sundays, exchange pleasantries, talk about the footy, the weather, and go home, never talk to anyone again until you have to come back for the next obligatory meeting and do the same. I mean, that's, that's not family. It's like having to go to those personal development days where you're just forced to put a name tag on and talk to people you don't like or know. That's, I mean, that's a horrible picture of church, right? But this picture of church, that's beautiful. A people who are united, a people who are citizens of the same heavenly nation, a, a people who are family, who are one. And can I say that it means that if, if you never make the commitment to join a gospel community at Anchor, then you're missing out on the best expression of unity and family and community that we have. Now, you're free to come and attend and, and just be here on Sundays, and we're not going to love you any less for that. We love the fact that you're here, but we, we don't want you to miss out on the blessing of being involved with people's lives, doing life together on mission as a family. That's our vision for Anchor. We believe that community is formed by the gospel, And we believe that community is formed for the gospel. So these community groups that we gather in are not just little inward holy huddles, but the hope is that we would be a light, that people would look at the community, the relationships that we have and be blown away. The fact that someone would bring us meals for a month. People look at that and think, that's crazy. Who does that? The church does that. The people of God do that because we're family. We're united as one. 
And so we've been formed by the gospel and for the gospel. Our gospel communities, and I'm going to walk through in a second some of the core values of our gospel communities. But our gospel communities are one expression of of gospel-formed community, if you like. This is gospel-formed community, the larger church gathered on Sundays. And what we do midweek in our small groups is another expression of gospel-formed community. We call them gospel communities, centered around the gospel. But what I don't want to do is create this false distinction between um, small church and big church, if you like. We have big church, and this is one expression of how God has made a family, and then we do small church during the week. We, we scatter, and that's another expression of our gospel-formed unity. And both of those expressions are important. Now, this movement that we're a part of, of seeing church view itself as a community of people on mission, often downplays the importance of the Sunday gathering. And I don't want to do that. This is really important, what we do here on Sunday mornings. The preaching of the word, the people of God gathered. God loves it when he sees what's happening here on a Sunday morning. And he loves it when he sees us scatter across our city and gather together and be on mission together and love each other as family. What I want to do now is quickly walk through with you the six things that are core values or rhythms of our gospel communities. Six things that we want to see happen. Because our gospel communities that we gather in midweek, they're not, as Brad mentioned, just social groups. They're not just Bible studies. Maybe you've been a part of a group before that was like a two and a half hour Bible study with five minutes of prayer tacked on at the end. It, it's, it's not what we want. It's not, it's not a social justice group just going out and serving in soup kitchens across our city. These are gospel-formed communities. And we've got six values and rhythms to how we do this. Now, now these six things are just as true for this gathering as they are for our small gathering for our smaller gospel communities. And so I want to walk through them with you now. The first, um, the first thing is that we listen. Hopefully this is going to come up on the screen. Beautiful. We listen. We listen to God, to one another, to our neighbors and our culture. We want to take the posture of being learners and listeners, listening to each other, listening to each other's stories, listening to the stories, the hurts, the fears, the dreams of our neighbors and our culture and our city. Because if we have any hope of speaking the truth of the gospel into that context, we need to know how to speak it, how to contextualize it, what to say. And so we listen. We want to be a community of people who listen. Secondly, pray. Second rhythm, second core value is prayer. We want to be totally dependent on God to transform our hearts and our city. Totally dependent on God to transform our hearts and our city. You notice these values have both inward and outward elements to them. Transform here, transform out there. All of that happens through prayer. Now that means that we don't just do, like I mentioned, two hours of Bible study with five minutes of prayer tacked on the end because that's what Christians ought to do, wrap up their meeting with prayer. No, no, we want to we be a people who saturate every corner of the life of our church in prayer. And can I say, we need to grow in this area. As a church, we need to grow. I want to see our prayer meetings full of people who are praying pleading with God that he would do what only he can do to transform lives in this city. Thirdly, participate. We participate in the life of our local community, engaging with people where they're at. Too often the church expects that the people, the culture, will come to us and engage on our terms and in our turf. 
But if we're going to view ourselves as missionaries and we're going to get there next week, it means that we need to engage with people on their terms and on their turf. And so we participate in the life of the culture around us. What that means is we're not going to form an anchor church soccer team. All right? We're not going to do it. What we're going to do is find the local comp, join the team that's there. Maybe a couple of guys will do it together and join the local soccer team and participate in the life of the community that already exists. We want to participate. That means that we go and get out of our homes, out of our lounge rooms, and go to the pub and have a meal together instead of just eating at home. We participate. We, we do pub trivia. We do all those. I think our group, the girls in our group, wanted to do this crazy dance thing where you go to this room, there's no lights on, and you just dance in the dark. I was like, I'm not into that, but <laughs> maybe I need to be to participate well. But we do, we do things like that, right? We get out and we get involved and participate in the community around us. What are we up to? Four. Number four, we serve. We serve one another and our city in practical ways as we seek to live such extraordinary lives that it demands explanation. We serve because Jesus first served us. It's a gospel-motivated service. If our city is going to know the love of God, if your neighbors are going to know the love of God, how are they going to know that unless we do that practically? Love is not just an idea in your head. It's not just an emotion. It's an action. We need to do it. We need to actually love people physically and do that properly. I want to give you an example, a beautiful story of, of how this has happened in one of our gospel communities. We've got a gospel community that meets at Summer Hill and at Brian and Tara's place. And... Some of their focus has been on the Summerhill community there. And so our sister Ruth, who's leading worship for us this morning, decided that she would go and meet the people that worked in the local cafe at Summerhill. And she met a young girl called Amelia, who she's developed a beautiful friendship with. In fact, it was her wedding yesterday, and Ruth was able to go to her wedding and, and be a part of it. But um, two weeks ago, I'm sitting in the cafe with Brian. And if you, if you, if you know Brian, like you cannot go to Summerhill with Brian and just not... Everybody knows him. It's just like, what do you do? Like, do you just hang out in Summerhill all the time? But you go down to Summerhill shops, and, and Brian knows everyone. And Amelia is working at the shop, and he's like, oh, how you doing? And she said, yeah, I was in Melbourne last week doing some shopping for my wedding, and my, my purse was stolen. They stole $800 from me. He's like, oh, that's horrible. She's like, yeah, I can't, I can't afford to buy wedding shoes now. And, and um, they finished up the conversation. He looks at me with this massive grin on his face, and he goes, I'm going to ask my gospel community to give her $800. He went home to his GC that night and said, Amelia was in Melbourne, purse was stolen, 800 bucks. Can you be generous? And they did. They gave her $800 to go buy wedding shoes and, and the things she needed for her wedding. What a beautiful expression of the community of God's people loving and serving their neighbours. That's, that's incredible. I love that story. We ought to celebrate that. You know, as I tell stories of the victories of some of our groups and people in our church, shouldn't make us feel jealous for that. It should make us celebrate what God is doing in the life of our community. I'm not saying that to puff up Ruth's pride or Brian's ego. I'm saying that because that we need to celebrate that. That is a good thing. That ought to bring us joy. And the gospel doesn't make us competitive amongst our gospel communities. It makes us one. And so we celebrate what God is doing in the life of our church. Fifth core value is that we eat. 
Now, you might think that's brilliant, particularly if you have an ethnic background. You think, yes, this is really good. We eat together. We share our everyday lives with one another and the lost by eating together. All of our gospel communities eat a meal together as we start. Now, it's something really simple, but it's important. And you'll be surprised how quickly that forms a sense of family and relationship. Um, I think my wife does this really well. We, we have dinner at our place, and for those of you who are in our gospel community, my wife loves to cook, and, and she, her, her gift is hospitality, and, although we haven't cooked for like six weeks because these guys have been loving us so well, but, but we just eat a meal together, and it's good food. Like We buy meat and chicken, and we do like slow-cooked meals with lamb shanks, and I don't know, have we done lamb shanks before? No, we've done other good stuff with meat in it. It's tasty, it's, we put effort in because what do you do when your family comes around for Christmas or Easter, what do you do? You cook a beautiful hearty meal and you celebrate family together. And so we, we eat together, we do life together and we do that in our community participating. We do that after our Sunday gatherings, we go up to the hive or the rows of Australia now, everyone's defected from the hive. We go to the rows and we have lunch there and we eat together as a family, it's what we do. And finally, we share the gospel. Our last core value is the gospel. We share the gospel with one another and with our community, with our city, with the lost. We're communities that are formed by the gospel, made family by what Jesus has done for the gospel to go out. We're not just a holy huddle. We preach the gospel to our hearts in our gospel communities before we go out and preach it to our city. Because if our city has any hope of knowing Jesus, it has to come out of the place of us personally understanding the gospel, us personally being awakened to our need for Jesus. Otherwise, we will go and preach self-righteously and hypocritically. And so the gospel has a both inward and outward focus to it. Let me give you a, a little story of how this has played out in the life of our church. Um, Steve and Beck's gospel community that meet in Ashfield have been doing some winter drinks at Ashfield train station. Been out there serving hot chocolate and hot apple cider to people as they jump off the train. And our brother Murray was there and um, this girl came and she took some hot chocolate and he got chatting and um, found out that we were a church group and whatnot. And uh, she said to him, what do you believe about prostitutes? Murray was kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? He said, oh, well, I guess, um, you know, people do that out of desperation and need. You know, they really need money, and so they, you know, maybe they're forced into that. And, but God still really loves them and, you know, kind of got his way through an answer and, and then was just sort of miffed by it. And the conversation continued, and, and he went back to her and he said, why did you ask me that? She said, well, well, I'm kind of a sex worker. And so Murray stopped and was able to, share the gospel with her at that point and invite her to church. And she said, oh, have you got any details? She's like, um, yeah, we can give you something. They didn't have anything. So he said, well, I'll, I'll just text you the details. Got her number, texted her the details, invited her to church with her friend that was there. She didn't really, really respond. So Murray just sent her a few Bible verses. And I, I read the messages this morning as Murray's explaining that God loves her, talking about the gospel, that God loves everyone. And then when was it? This week? This week, she messages him back and she says, she hasn't responded for two weeks. And she messages him back and says, oh, thank you for, for sharing that stuff with me. Uh, I've decided that it's good for me to probably get out of the sex industry and I'm changing. I want to be a better Christian. 
and do this. And Murray's like, you don't have to be a better Christian. You know, he's preaching the gospel there again. And it's just a beautiful expression of, I mean, it's so simple, isn't it? Serve someone a cup of hot chocolate, begin a conversation, find out she's a prostitute, tell her that God loves her, and God's working in her life. Incredible as we gospel our city. Now, all of those six core things you notice probably all happened on that one night. Steve's group would have prayed together as they went out and they began to serve, they began to participate, they began to gospel. All of those things we do week in, week out as part of our gospel-formed community because we're family. The final thing I want to say about our gospel communities is this. As we do life together as a family, relationships deepen, we begin to love each other, we walk through difficult times with each other and then we get to a point where our gospel communities reach a size where we need to multiply and send people who we love and send people who we form deep relationships with off to go and start a new gospel community so new disciples of Jesus can come. And that's the cost of the gospel. It means that we send people, our best people, the people that we love the most, we send them off to start a new gospel community somewhere else in our city. Multiplication is a part of our vision. You notice that at the start? We want to gather people together in rapidly multiplying gospel communities. There's a cost that comes to that. Cost of comfort, cost of relationships. But I promise you, on the last day when you stand before Jesus, there will be not a hint of regret at sending the people that you love most, at sending the people who are the most gifted out to begin a new gospel community so that people could meet Jesus. We're committed to multiplying. We're committed to these things because we're united by the blood of Jesus, because we're citizens of a new, a new home, because we're family. That's what our church is about. That's our community pillar of our vision. Next week, we're going to look at how that community lives on mission in everyday life with gospel intentionality. You know, one of the expressions of family and community is, is eating meals together. And the church would often celebrate the Lord's Supper together over a meal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to the church there for their, the way that they're conducting their meals together. People are coming together, uh, they're getting drunk the rich are eating all the food, the poor come hungry. And he says, this is, this is not what it looks like. It's not family. It's not what it should be. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the, the cup and after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we looked at that last week. What we do in this time of response is a proclamation of the gospel. Whoever eats, therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the family, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This isn't just an individual moment of worship to Jesus. 
This is a family moment. And so, friends, I want to invite you that if there is disunity, disharmony, hurt that has happened, then, then take time today to reconcile with your brother and sister and be who you already are in Christ. Reconcile to God and reconcile to each other. Let this meal that we're about to participate in be an expression of gospel unity and family. I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you know that that's the case. Maybe you could head outside of that person and confess sin and repent and pray together and then come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That would be a beautiful thing to do. Maybe it just means confessing your own sin to God and then celebrating the victory that the gospel has won. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to come and take that bread, dip it in the grape juice and eat it in remembrance that Jesus has died, that Jesus has risen again, that our life is now caught up in him and he has given us a new identity, family, family. It's a reminder of that. So would you pray with me as we respond? I'm going to invite you to stand as the band comes up. We're going to celebrate together in the gospel and in what Jesus has done. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you have made us one, that you have made us family, that you have destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Thank you that we are now citizens of a new home, a new nation. Thank you, Father, that we are family, that in this room we stand amongst our brothers and sisters And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be the church that you want us to be. Not just a group of people who are nominally committed to each other, but a family. And so Father, if there is grievance and hurt, pray that you would sow healing and forgiveness. As we eat this meal together, it would be a family celebration of the gospel of what you have done for us. We plead with you, Father, please change and transform us by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen.